Thanks, Jez. Well, the joy of Christianity is that we have an intimate relationship with an infinite God. And the claim that we make as Christians is that this relationship only comes through Jesus Christ because he is the true, full and final revelation of God. He is the reconciling sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. This is what we claim as Christians. This is, in fact, what John has been talking about earlier in the book of 1 John. But here's the question. How do you know that you know this God? How do you know that you have an intimate relationship with him? Well, in this section that we're going to look at from 1 John chapter 2, we're going to see that John is answering that question. If you open up to 1 John 2, you'll see there in verse 3 that he says, we have come to know him. As John writes this letter, he's writing it to Christians and he writes on the basis or the assumption that these Christians do know God. But how do you know you know God? Well, this is what John is going to tell us. Because he says, we're going to see that when you know God, certain things happen in your life. This knowledge of God is not an abstract intellectual knowledge. It's a transformative knowledge. It's a knowledge that forms and shapes you. And what's the nature of this shaping and forming? Well, it's there in verses 5 and 6. He says, If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made Uh, complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. See, God's love has a goal. And that goal is there in verse 6. What's that goal? Well, it's that we would walk as Jesus walked. What does it look like to have an intimate relationship with the infinite God? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like how he lived. See, the way that Jesus related to his father was in obedience and in love, but his obedience wasn't a ticking of a box. His obedience was because he was living in communion, in intimacy with God. Jesus viewed all the commands of God in, as love. Jesus, who is love, whose life is the full demonstration of love, shows us what it is to live as Christians in love. In fact, it shows us what it is to know God. If we know God, we live like Jesus lives. I don't know if any of us have seen the Netflix series The Crown. Has anyone seen the first or second? Has seen The Crown? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's been quite popular series and it's really brought the ups and downs of the English monarchy to a new generation who didn't live through uh, the ups and downs. And there's a really um, obviously important section that's covered in The Crown and that's the abdication of King Edward VIII or Albert. He gives up all the prestige, all the power, all the acclaim, all the expectation of his family and whole nation. He gives it up. Why? Well, we find out that he gives it up 
in the crown for love. Here's an excerpt from his speech in 1936. He says, You know all the reasons that have impelled me to renounce the throne. You must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman that I love. Why give up the crown? Why against all the expectation of the people, the wealth, the power, the honour, the prestige? Why did he did it? He did it in his own mind. He did it because he loved this woman, Wallace Simpson's. And that's, a, you know, that's an incredible thing, isn't it? Incredible that love, at least in his mind, would propel him to make such a drastic and significant decision because it makes sense for us in our modern world. Love is something that we value. Love is something that we think is powerful. Who's seen the series, uh, the movie Moulin Rouge? Going back now, a couple more. Uh, Moulin Rouge is essentially a celebration of love, and it's actually more than that. It's actually a study in what we mean by love in our modern world. Um, Baz Luhrmann, the Australian producer, um, really explores this notion of love because love often has this very sentimental kind of understanding. In fact, Ewan McGregor's character sings to Nicole Kidman Satine, and he sings about love and what he does is he stitches together all these different love songs to kind of draw a picture of how we understand love in our modern world. He starts singing, love is like oxygen, love is a many splendid thing, love lifts us up where we belong, love is all you need. And yet as he celebrates love, as he's caught up in his love for Satine, she meets him not with reception and just being overwhelmed by how gooey and sentimental he is. She's sceptical. In fact, she's more than sceptical, she's cynical. As he sings, all you need is love, she sings, love is just a game. See, we're confused about love. It does, for so many, mean this syrupy sentimentalism, and yet we know that it has to be more than that. Satine knows that love has to be more than mere feelings and sentiment. And in fact, the more sentimental we are about love, I think the more cynical we are about love. And so when we come to read this section, which is primarily about love, I think we come very confused as we exist in a modern world that's quite confused about love. But Jesus isn't cynical about love, and he's not confused. He's not confused between the difference between between the, sorry, the relationship between love and obedience. In fact, Jesus summarises all the commandments of God when he says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and you are to love others as yourself. Paul, in the book of Romans, says the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So in Paul... And Jesus' mind, love is central to our obedience as Christians. And it was even important in the scriptures before Paul 
and Jesus. We read in the book of Leviticus from chapter 17, verse 18, that we are to love our neighbour as ourself. I am the Lord your God. And so that's why John says there, if you have a look in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he says, this love that I'm calling you to, it's, it's not novel. It's from the beginning. Why is it from the beginning? Well, as we read in the pages of Scripture, we read that actually, and we come to understand and appreciate that God has created our world out of love. And he's made us to receive his love and he's made us to be also givers of love that we receive. And this is important for us to understand because John says there in verse 10, have a look at verse 10, if love is absent from our life, then we don't in fact know God. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. The idea of abiding in the light for John, I think, is describing this intimate relationship. He's saying, if you have this intimate relationship with God, it will, it will show itself in the way you think and relate to other people. And it will affect our lives. I'm sure many of us didn't come to church this morning wondering, or this afternoon, wondering if love was important for the Christian. And so that's why I think John so helpfully gives us a very sharp point by illustrating for us the alternative to love. Love and the language of love comes very easily off our lips. But John helpfully and really quite sharply to our modern ears, contrasts love with hate. We're up to the second point there in the outline, the alternative to love. Because he, com- he compares it with hate. If anyone who claims to be in the light hates his brother, he is still in darkness. If all we need is love, love is often in short supply. You heard someone say, you know, why can't we just get on and love each other? You know, come on people, can't we just love one another? What would be your response if someone said that? John says you cannot hate and claim to be in a living relationship with a God who loves. And so we hear the starkness of what John is saying. Yes, you can't hate if you say that you are in close relationship with the God of love, we understand that. So what do we do? I think what we do is we diminish or we lower the grounds for hate because hate's just not one of those pleasant things. I mean, parents often correct their children for saying, I hate peas. Well, you know, you don't hate peas. You don't happen to like... I hate my brother. You don't hate your brother... What we do is we lower the bar for hate. And of course, we as Christian people wouldn't engage in any um, kind of emotion of hate. I mean, I, I assume that probably today you haven't sent an angry email to someone that you're not 
this week actively out to pursue the downfall of others. You're not hoping for the demise of those who don't like you and you don't like them. That's not normally how we get caught up in thinking. So does that mean that we as Christian people are not capable of hate? Well, what does it mean to hate? I think Jesus helps us in this. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 6, because there in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, I'll read it out for us. He says, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Jesus here is speaking about hate. And he's speaking about what hate looks like. And he says there in verse 22, he defines hate essentially as rejection. He says, when they exclude you and insult you, to dismiss in Jesus' mind, to disregard someone in Jesus' mind is to hate. That's a slightly different way I think we normally think about hate because exclusion happens all the time. Exclusion can happen. We exclude others passively by what we don't do. And of course we exclude others by what we do do. And so here I think it's challenging for us because Jesus, I think, helps us to understand that if we are not actively including then we are often excluding. And so for John, hate is a failure to love. See, what John doesn't let us get away with, I think what we normally think is that hate and love are two opposite poles. And there between hate and love is this wide neutral zone, this grey zone that's neither love nor hate. But John doesn't let us do this. John creates a clear dichotomy that doesn't leave much room either side of love or hate. See, to be in darkness... Sorry, you see there in verse 11 the effect of hate. What does hate do? Hate blinds. To be in darkness is to be morally disorientated. And so John is saying here that as the person has a level of hate in their heart, it creates a a fuzziness. It It clouds an ability to see reality. It blinds is his language there in verse 11. You know, 15 years ago, everyone went, or maybe 20 years ago, everyone was into those 3D goggles and everyone had them around their house because you'd, you know, leave them, get them from the movies and, and so you'd go to someone's house and you'd put on these 3D goggles and it was absolutely ridiculous trying to look through these 3D goggles. It was so blurry. Well, this is what John is saying. It creates, as we, as a person, engages, not in love but hate, it distorts our moral compass. You know, 
if you've been in a disagreement, sometimes you might play over in your mind again and again the conversation that you've had and you play the conversation defending yourself, replaying what words you might have said. As you play that conversation again and again in your mind, I think there's pause for us to consider if that is not the fog of hate descending upon us. See, if you hate, your compass is off. You think you're heading west, but you're actually heading south. Because hate confuses us. Hate confuses our purpose and our meaning. Have a look there again in verse 11. See, the person who engages in hate does not know where he is going. Because to live morally in our world, it's to assume an end. It's to have a goal. And what hate does as it descends upon us and upon our hearts is to confuse us. So we don't know where we're going and, in fact, we don't know how to get there. This means that I think if, if we find ourselves in this situation where we do not want the, moral, the, the, the flourishing of another, if we even actively wish to exclude others, we need to pause in our minds and consider what John is saying here. And it means we have to, I think, second-guess ourselves morally if we engage in this kind of thinking, then we have to assume that a mist has come upon us and we can't see things clearly. Because when we hate, we lose sight of the goal. The goal, as we saw at the start, the goal is to love. But hate takes us off course. God has created us to love him. He's created us to love him with, his, with our whole being and others as ourselves. He's created us to experience that love and to move outside into our world knowing this love. If hate is the problem, if hate disorientates us, well, love in John's mind, is the answer. Have a look again there in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. What does it mean to love? Is it just a sentimental affection for someone else? Is it an affinity for someone that you happen to have a lot in common with? Well, the way the Bible thinks about love is different to simply a like The way the Bible thinks about love is different to simply an affinity or even a connection, a felt connection that you have with someone else. You see, you like who you have an affinity with. But liking someone that you have an affinity with is not necessarily love. See, because it's very hard to have an affinity with an enemy, isn't it? But Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies. You can like someone and not love them. You cannot like them, an enemy. And in fact, in Jesus' mind, you can love an enemy. 
But John isn't talking here about loving enemies, is he? Who's he talking to? Who is he calling these Christians to love? Well, have a look in verse 10 and 11. You see he's calling them to love their brothers. He's calling them to love fellow Christians whom we assume that they're in Christian community with. So that John is saying here that we should only love Christians. Clearly, we see that Jesus calls us to love everyone, including our enemies. But here, Jesus, uh, here John is calling us to love. He's calling us not just to love those that we are close to, nor simply our enemies, but primarily John has in mind those that we are in Christian community with. We are to seek others flourishing at the expense of ourselves. And I think that's what John means when he says that there's a new commandment because clearly the commandment to love is as old as Leviticus. So there's nothing new about that. But the, there is a newness about this commandment to love. Is it old or is it new, John? It's hard to tell in verses 7 and 8 there. Well, it's both, I think, is John's point. It's old because it goes back to the very beginning of God's commands, but it's new. It's new in the sense that this expression of love, this full, concrete expression of love had not been seen until Jesus walked the earth. Even Jesus' detractors in John chapter 11, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, even those who plotted to kill Jesus. We read at the end of John chapter 11 as he weeps at Lazarus' tomb. They say, see how he loved this man. There was something very new in Jesus' life about the level of love that he showed. I mean, he loved his friend Lazarus and his friends Mary and Martha. He loved lost souls like the rich young ruler who rejected him. He loved even a city that was hostile to him as he weeped over Jerusalem. He even loved those who conspired to murder and put him on the cross. You see, there is something new in John's mind, very new in the person of Jesus and what he shows us and how he shows us what love is. And so... John wants us to have Jesus in mind. But as we have Jesus in mind, John wants us to look primarily to brotherly love there in verses 9 and 11. Why does John, do you think, focus on Christian relationships here? I mean, if Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to love enemies, why does he, why does he narrow his focus here, particularly in verses 9 to 11? Why, why restrict it? to Christian relationships. I think this is our third point. It's because the church is the school of love. The church is where we learn to love. Christian relationships train us in order to grow us in our ability to love such that we would love even our enemies such that we would love others outside of Christian community. This is the function of the church. People, you know, often uh, struggle at church because they don't have an affinity, perhaps with those in church, things that they've got in common, an ability to connect. And so people give up on church 
and people in church because it's hard to love them. They don't connect with them. They don't get them and people don't get them and they don't get others. It doesn't sometimes feel friendly. Perhaps it doesn't even feel kind, but that's the whole point. Because the church is a school for love. We're not natural lovers. It's not something that's sentimental and gooey that just kind of gushes out of us as we sing lovely songs. No, we need to be trained in this. We need to work at this. We need to be formed in this. And as we are formed in the church, God sends us out to love a wider world. He sends us out to love even our enemies. You know, when someone says, I don't really need the church, that's like, you know, an Olympic athlete saying, I don't really need to train. Because it's in our experience of love and our experience of loving others that we are strengthened. Our muscles, in terms of love, are stretched This is where we train, and I'm no Olympic athlete. I can hardly jog once or twice a week because it's hard work. It's hard work running. I don't like it. It's good for me, but I don't like it. And loving others is hard work too. Sometimes I don't like it. But this is what God is training us for. He's training us to love one another here as God's people. And hard love is a mirror. It can be difficult to love others in church. Uh, The apostle is not ashamed to say that. But in calling Christians to love one another, he shows us how much he loves us. Because as we experience the difficulty of what it is to love others in church, we begin to think, if it's difficult for me to love others, someone else in church, it helps remind us of how difficult must it have been for God to love me. See, the church takes love from just a a sentimental, gooey idea and it gives us something very concrete and tangible. It gives us an opportunity to express love to one another. And as we do it, as we express our love, as we're patient in love, as we're trained in love, as we take love from more than just a concept that's nice into the relationships that we are given, God trains us and strengthens us. And so I want to ask us here tonight, in what ways is God teaching you to commit to the flourishing of others in our church? Because love takes time. Love takes energy. Love takes emotion. Love is never convenient. And so we need to ask ourselves, what sacrifices are we making in order to love? And can I ask, who are we loving? Is it those that we just have an affinity with? Perhaps they're the same age, and it's nice because it's safe. Or is it those that we are called to love here as a church across age, ethnic, interest, bounds? Are we being strengthened to love by loving those who we don't necessarily even have an affinity with? How will we do this? Well, how will we we be fuelled for love? 
Well, this is where I'll finish. It's there in verse 8. John says, I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. John is saying here in verse 8 that this light of God's love in the Lord Jesus is already shining. You notice the language there? It's the light is shining. It's not about to shine. It is shining. And if it is shining, that means that you have new capacities and new opportunities to love. That we are actually controlled by a new power. There's a new reign, if you like, of love that's at work in the Christian person. The Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that the love of Christ controls us. And when we love, you know what happens? The fog fades. We start to see everyone and every event in the light of God's love. And it gives us a new capacity and a new clarity. So how do we do it? Well, we do it in verse 10 by abiding, by being bathed in the reality and the experience of God's love in ourselves. This isn't an abstract idea. This is an experience that God is calling us to. And as we experience, as we abide and stay in God's love, there we are charged, recharged and refreshed for the love of others. We need to be bathed and abide and stay in the reality of his love for us, that the Son of God loves me and gave himself up for me, that God is pursuing my flourishing at great expense to himself, that nothing I can do can undermine that love that he has given me in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I might undermine my reception and experience of that love, but that doesn't undermine his love for me. He loves me. He loves us. Moment by moment, day by day, he loves us. The good things that means at their best are a reflection of God's love. But the good things that we enjoy in life don't make us and they aren't everything. If we abide in God's love, even the bad things, those difficult and painful realities, they can't even undermine and detract from his undaunted, committed love for you. He who freely gave his own son for us, how, who, how will he not also give us all things? When God's love takes hold of you, when we bathe and bask and abide in the reality of his love for us, then we love, we begin to love others. And God's love has a goal. God's love has a goal and that is the love of others. And we will walk as Jesus walked. And we will know that we are his children. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that we might so grasp your love that you have showed us in the gospel of your Son that you would drive out every fear, that you would give us a peace, that you would renew our hearts and that you would energise us and motivate us to see others to give ourselves for others flourishing at our own cost. And Father, this we can't do without your spirit. So would you 
pour out your spirit to open our eyes to reality of your love. And as we open our eyes, may we abide in it, stay in it, be renewed in it day by day for your glory and for our assurance, we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing.